0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents The Founders of Modern Physics, a panel discussion among eminent scientists exploring the revolution in quantum mechanics and its intellectual milieu. This panel was part of Intellectual Circles and 20th Century Science, a conference organized in conjunction with events surrounding the 2008 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, delivered by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Stephen Chu.
1: I've been given the task of um, explaining quantum mechanics in 15 minutes. Now, um, I, I should tell you that I was born in uh, in Florence, in Italy, and grew up in Florence, and uh, many people visited me there, and I perfected the 11-minute tour of the Uffizi. And. Having done that, having achieved that many times successfully, though I've never tried the 15-minute tour of quantum mechanics, it should be easy by comparison. So, and you said physicists are arrogant, right? You know? And I said 15 minutes as well, Uh Uh-oh. So I'm going to talk about the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. So the lightning tour and the continuing debate. And if I'm going to be talking about quantum mechanics, and since I have so much time, I think I really should also talk about Niels Bohr, and it is appropriate because if you're going to be talking about quantum mechanics, you really should talk about Niels Bohr. So, this is what um, physicists learn at the beginning. Um, Namely, it's the idea of the Bohr atom. This was proposed in 1913 by a young a 28-year-old Dane who had just come back from spending some time in Manchester with Rutherford. Rutherford had just made a sensational discovery that the atom not, was not what people thought, but in fact was composed of a massive nucleus right in the middle there. Okay, does it shine? Let's see, it probably shine. This one uh, will also be a laser
2: pointer
1: you need it. This is working? Okay, good, a nucleus in the middle with electrons surrounding it. Most of it was just the great void, or as Rutherford called it, the, um, he liked to compare it to a gnat in Albert Hall. Um, of course, most of us don't know what a gnat is and don't know what Albert Hall is, but you get the idea there. So these electrons were circling around it. Bohr took that picture and combined it with the ideas proposed uh, first by Max Planck in 1900, the notion of the quantum, and then further refined by Einstein in 1905, that uh, radiation was composed of photons. And so Bohr made his picture of the atom, which was a central nucleus in the middle with electrons orbiting around it. However, it was completely different from classical physics. Because first of all, in classical physics, a circling electron radiates and very quickly spirals down to the center. In his picture, that didn't happen. They just kept going happily round and round. And furthermore, the size of the orbits was fixed by certain rules of quantum theory. This is the dawn of what I'd like to think of as the second revolution in physics. The first revolution was classical mechanics. There were Kepler's laws, as we all know, and then Newton achieved the first revolution, which was the theory of gravity, and it explained planetary motion in exquisite precision. And there were lots and lots of effects, both on thought, on arts, and on science, in fact, most of the great mathematics um, of the 18th century was devoted to this problem of classical mechanics. However, classical mechanics, particles circling nicely around the sun, the planets, did not apply here. Nevertheless, there was something very true about this model, just as there were about Kepler's um, laws, but it needed a revolution. The second revolution, which is quantum mechanics. But this was the basis of it. This model explained a, sort, a number of phenomena in such exquisite precision that it had to be the basis of the next jump, just as Kepler's law had to be the basis for which Newton took off. Okay. Uh, Bohr also had a very profound influence on the uh, people around him. And I've given a couple of quotes. One is by uh, Werner Heisenberg. The first is a quote talking about when Heisenberg first met Bohr, the occasion was Göttingen. Um, Heisenberg was 20 years old. At the end of a lecture given by the 37-year-old Bohr, it was also the year he got the Nobel Prize, he was a great man. He was the leader of the new quantum theory. Heisenberg got up, asked him a question, and uh, afterwards Bohr said, that was a very interesting question. Why don't you come for a walk with me? The three hour walk, that's Heisenberg's um, (coughs) uh, statement about it. The second statement is the statement Bohr made, I'm sorry, Heisenberg made at Bohr's obituary. Here's another statement by John Wheeler. Uh, a great American physicist who died just a few years ago, um, and who knew everybody in physics. He was a professor at Princeton for a long time. He was Feynman's thesis advisor. And this gives you a kind of feeling for what people thought about Bohr. Now I thought I would show you a picture of Bohr. Um, This is a little bit of a teaser. This is Bohr walking uh, on the street with a friend of his, who you probably recognize. Um, Bohr looks worried. Einstein looks cheerful. The picture was taken in 1930 in Brussels. I'll tell you why later on. Bohr looked worried and Einstein looked cheerful. The picture the next day would show Einstein looking worried and Bohr looking cheerful, okay. Um, Bohr also built a new kind of institution. And this ties in very nicely to what um, first Steve Chu was saying and and also to what uh, Jonathan Lear was just saying a moment ago. This was um, built by Bohr. He raised the money, he checked with all the carpenters, he hammered nails in, he checked the pipes, etc. And in 1922, this opened in Copenhagen. Now, um, the idea was that Bohr had was to create a community of theoretical physicists. They would live together, walk together, talk together, eat together, and so this building was the focus of it. You walked in the front door. Here's a lecture hall. There's a little library with with desks where the young physicists sat. There's a cafeteria there, where you could always get herring and cheese and coffee. Um, the top part of it was where the Bohr family lived. Okay, so they were all piled up on one uh, on top of one another, and they basically lived together. They talked together. They played games together. Uh, and they also accomplished great things in physics together. Okay, this is some picture, you know. Um, The spirit of this was really collaboration. People came from all parts of the world, from Russia, the United States, Japan. This is a more recent example of uh, a large collaboration, but the principles are the same insofar as getting the work done. So now, what is quantum mechanics? Okay. Well, quantum mechanics, the dam began to break in 1924 when a young, young 24-year-old, quote, genius named Wolfgang Pauli proposed the Pauli exclusion principle, um, which he says no two, basically no two electrons could be, if you wanted to think of it in orbits, they can't be in the same orbit However, he said, and this is a Christmas letter to Bohr, he says, you know, we can't think of orbits. We need a revolution. He didn't say a revolution. We need something new, okay? And we can't just think about them as moving in orbits. Weak men, uh, Pauli was famous for being sarcastic. Um, So weak men who need the crutch of defined orbits, not you, Bohr, you know. Um, We need to think of it a new way. Okay, that new way began in the summer of 1925, and quantum mechanics was born. It was born in two different incarnations, and we know the two places where it occurred. The first was an island in the North Sea, and the second was a hotel in Arosa in the Swiss Alps. One was by Werner Heisenberg, and the other was by an Austrian named Erwin Schrodinger. They looked totally different. Okay. They used different mathematics, looked different, sounded different, but they seemed to solve the same problems. And very quickly, they were shown to be equivalent. Equivalent, that means mathematically equivalent. They did the same things. But what did it mean? was the question. What did their mathematics mean? People preferred Schrodinger's formulation because the mathematics used was more familiar. They didn't like Heisenberg's formulation as much at first. But Heisenberg did not like Schrodinger's interpretation of his mathematics, nor did Pauli, nor did Bohr. Schrodinger had these a wave mechanics. He had a guiding wave which guided these electrons around something a little bit like orbits. Um, these three Heisenberg and Pauli, and um, Bohr said, we need something deeper than this. So what? What did Heisenberg do? He said, I need to go someplace where there's somebody I can talk to. Somebody who will help me figure this out, and there's nobody better than Bohr. And Bohr says, come, come Werner, you know. uh, By this point, Bohr had five children, so they had built him a little house next door, and the old uh, rooms on the third floor, uh, Heisenberg, they built a little apartment, and Heisenberg went to live there. And so over the course of a year from, sort of September 1927, 1926 to 1927, these two um, battled it out day after day. What does quantum mechanics mean? And we have uh, correspondence and descriptions of what it was like. You know, Bohr would go home for dinner and then he'd walk over to Heisenberg's apartment and say, I was thinking, you know. And so this went on day after day with some of the other community there in that institution in Copenhagen. At any one time, there were about um, nine or 10 young people in residence who had come from all over the world. So Oscar Klein, hundreds Kramers, etc. They all participated. And Pauli was the referee. He was in Hamburg. Out of those discussions emerged the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. So what does quantum mechanics do? Well, quantum mechanics does lots of nice things, uh, as Meg says. It explains you know, the behavior of electrons, periodic table, conductors, insulator. Um, it was a, a revolution in thought, and also a revolution in terms of the applications it produced. But there were many puzzling features of it. The probabilistic interpretation of Schrodinger's guiding wave What did that mean? Um, You couldn't actually measure the wave. The only thing you could measure, this is for in mathematical terms, was the absolute square of its magnitude, its magnitude, not its phases. Um, The idea of particle-wave duality. um, Einstein had said radiation is also particles, photons. And De Broglie had said, as uh, Steve Chu said in his lecture, you know, he gave um, how people had shown that electrons were waves. So by the mid-20s, people said that electrons are also waves. So what does it mean that particles are waves and waves are particles? A very confusing thought. And then there's the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg, which is also part of this interpretation, which says that there are limits imposed on the possibility of measurements. There are uh, certain variables called complementary variables. For instance, the position, and roughly speaking, the velocity of a particle. You cannot measure them both simultaneously with arbitrary precision. There are limits, and the magnitude of the uncertainty associated with the measurement is fixed by a number, and that number is the same number that appears as the basis of quantum theory, Planck's constant. And finally, there was complementarity. Uh, Bohr, who was truly a wonderful man, but could sometimes be, though he was extremely careful in what he said, but could be obscure. And uh, here's a typical obscure statement of Bohr's, truth and clarity are complementary." Uh, well, uh, and what he was saying was that in the argument, is something a particle, or is it a wave? The answer is, it's both. These are both manifestations of some underlying truth or some underlying reality, if you wish. And if you perform an experiment to see something as a particle, you will see a particle. If you perform an experiment to see that very same thing as a wave, you'll see it as a wave. But you can never see it simultaneously as a particle and as a wave. These are complementary manifestations. Why is it that you can't see it? Why is it you can't make a screen with two slits, see it as a wave, and see which slit it went through? Well, there comes the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It puts limits on the kind of measurements you can make. So this was not only a revolutionary theory, but there were very profound and puzzling statements associated with it. Hmm? We're at 50 now. Two minutes and then I'll quit, thanks. All right, so this was all worked out. And then they went to a meeting um, in Brussels. This is the Solvay Conference where all the greats gathered uh, to discuss the topic. Um, There's Bohr, there's Einstein, there's Heisenberg, and there's Pauli. Uh, And this is also the beginning of the great discussion between Bohr and Einstein about the meaning of quantum mechanics because Bohr affirmed the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Einstein eventually said, yes, yes, it works, but there is some deeper truth which we have not yet understood. Okay. The Solvay debate goes on, and now this is the explanation of the teaser slide that I showed you, okay. This was, it went on at Solvay in 1930. Einstein said, I have now something which disproves the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's why Bohr was looking worried and Einstein was looking cheerful. By the next day, Bohr had shown that using the principle of general relativity, which Einstein had formulated, there was a fine point there that Einstein had missed, and in fact, it was correct. And here's a picture of the apparatus And there's a picture of a meeting at Bohr's institute which was not like Solvay. You see they had fun. There's a little bugle to stop the meeting, like Meg is about to (laughs) blow that little bugle. If that doesn't work, um, here's a cannon. (laughs) And there's Bohr, Heisenberg, Pauli, Gamow, Landau, and various other great people. Thank you very much.
2: My title is uh, The Effects of uh, Bohr uh, and Wittgenstein on Modern Neuroscience. I have 15 minutes to describe that. I'm going to cut corners. <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm going to throw away the, <laughs> the text that I had in the most part. Uh, I, I want to tell you what I want to tell you, because uh, I don't think it's going to be possible to understand what I tell you. <clears throat> What I want to tell you is the following. Uh, Modern neuroscience, uh, and neuroimaging particularly, uh, is devoted to explaining concepts of the mind, like uh, attention, memory, consciousness. It gets these concepts from psychology, mostly from cognitive psychology, which says, uh, we know what these concepts are. There are modules of memory or attention, and they go into the brain, and in the brain, uh, they are treated by a computer-like brain. And so these concepts, when they come in, regardless of how they're embedded, as long as there's a memory concept or an attention concept, the memory will be in a certain place or places in the brain, and similarly, the attention will be someplace else. Uh, if that sounds absurd to you, uh, it, that's good, because it is. <laughs> but it's actually very actively pursued uh, in uh, cognitive neuroscience, and 100,000 uh, references to neuroimaging of that 100,000, probably uh, 99,000, uh, assume that this is correct, and that they, although they don't find it truly, that there is not an objective understanding of the brain, they act like it almost is, and then they, they go on from there. So the problem is that they have a concept, <coughs> a coherent concept, That they want to explain, a psychological concept, and they want to get objective understanding of it, and the hopes have been disappointed by uh, all the data that have accumulated. Uh, I would like to propose today uh, something which actually we we treat every day as our working hypothesis, uh, that you cannot explain these uh, psychological concepts in... uh, uh, rational, objective, scientific terms that can be communicated, and that these experiments that are being done and that we've done our share of uh, are not uh, supporting this rational view, this objective view of cognitive concepts, psychological concepts, or other concepts of everyday life. And then faced with that, uh, and in this context uh, of discussing Bohr particularly and Wittgenstein, I want to show you the relevance of first Wittgenstein briefly, and then particularly Bohr's complementarity following on uh, uh, the previous talk, uh, the relevance of that for how to deal with the questions that are left uh, by uh, not having a coherent view of memory or attention. Now, uh, I, I think if I were to pick up immediately from Gino's talk, it would be that the electron <clears throat> from quantum uncertainty, uh, bo- existing both as a particle and a wave, cannot be explained by tr- in, qu- in quantum terms now by fusing qua- wave and particle together and saying, ah, we finally have identified the uh, ele- uh, electron. But rather, it's the properties And the means of measuring the properties that complementarity says is all we can get about the electron. If we measure it as a wave, we'll see a wave, and measure it as a particle in photoemission, we'll see a particle. But these two concepts have to stay in our mind, uh, in our description, and we have to be guided by these, uh, description of the method in which we measure the property as well as saying what the property is. This destroys the old idea of subjectivity and objectivity that there's a particle like an electron that we can be objective about because we are separate from it but rather the way in which we measure it becomes intermixed with what we are what its property is well this disturbed Bohr uh, following uh, Gino's talk but uh, his disturbance was really profound <clears throat> and because what he had to give up in order to speak about the electron in these terms that I've just described, uh, he had to give up causality. <clears throat> and the uncertainty principle is embedded in the cause of this. He had to give up causal relations between what he observed now and what uh, he would expect in the future. And of course, causality was the crown jewels of physics. Of physics. It had given physics, its, and still does, its dominant position in the world. And here, he was faced with the fact that physics, at least at the quantum low level, microscopic level, Uh, physics could not uh, give you causal explanations. You had to settle for the way in which you measure it, the complementarity, and you can measure it in two different ways. Uh, I would like to propose (coughs) that, uh, in fact, we have, as I say, been studying it on this basis, that that is the way one has to look at these concepts of mental life. uh, The concepts of mental life can be divided uh, in the the present uh, biophysical age when we do these experiments, imaging and all all the other experiments we do, it can be divided into making physical measurements which reflect the mental state and in making some other measurements which uh, uh, try to give you an identification from the behavior, but an observable behavior, of what the mental state is. And then what you... I'll come back to what that might be and I'll show you some examples. So what we want to do then is not describe in physical and objective terms what a mental activity or mental state is. We want to describe what its properties are. And its properties are physical properties and they are also behavioral properties which reflect a, a state of consciousness or uh, some remembering that you have done or uh, anxiety or any of the things that uh, you find in your state in the observable so you have in this in a similar and quite analogous way to the quantum mechanical apparent paradox you have two separate ways of measuring a state of the brain uh, processing and the, all you can do about it is measure both of those there is one uh, uh, Slightly savoring, saving feature that is happening, and that is by measuring these properties, uh, they begin to cohere a little bit. So we see some reflections in the physical measurement of the state of the mind, and uh, that becomes uh, a build, begins to build up a uh, uh, an understanding. Look at uh, but look at water. Look at H2O. <coughs> uh, <coughs> Uh, H2O exists in a certain energy range, te- te- certain temperature range, and we what do we know about what water is? Well, we know its properties. We measure its surface tension, we measure its calorimetry, and uh, all sorts of things we can measure about water, and that's it we measure. We, we measure, we, we know what water is from its properties. So my suggesting that we know what a state of the uh, mind would be uh, from its properties is quite analogous, and, Uh, it depends, quite analogously, on making physical, reliable, objective measurements uh, of that state. I'm going to define that state of consciousness that I referred to a moment ago. We propose that the concepts of consciousness, as defined by psychology or everyday usage, are not adequate for scientific examination. uh, From Wittgenstein's view that generalizations of that sort are uh, not valid, Uh, or from the empirical results of modern functional imaging, which are not finding an objective uh, display of mental concepts. However, a state of consciousness can be defined and its nature understood from its observable properties. The one that I'm using at this this moment, I do use, is the ability to respond to a question. Hit it. So this is a result from a, a, a Japanese laboratory that had a number of... Uh, uh, it's actually an operating room where they're studying what people can say under uh, anesthesia. And this is uh, uh, the response of a number of different individuals. There are about uh, 12, or 12 of them just plotted uh, a straight line. This is the depth of an increasing anesthesia. And this is the probability of no response. To that simple question so at deep anesthesia the subjects the patients had no response but then uh, over a rather short range about 50 percent of the full range of anesthesia over short range they lose the ability to respond and they would be in the unconscious state now with all our magnetic resonance techniques uh, which i and all the experiments that we do what we can do is we can also measure the energy that the brain is consuming, in, we measure glucose oxidation at these different levels, and we can say that energy is following the same path, just like, uh, therefore, we have the, a state of the brain, which has high high energy and low energy, high energy and the anesthetized state. And under high energy and the low energy state, we can take those two extremes, and then we can start seeing in addition to being able to answer a question, uh, what kind of physical measurements can we make of that? Can, how can we make use, for example, of functional imaging in those two states? And so and now if we can find the next slide.
3: It's up there. What? It's there.
2: Wow. <laughs> we solved the slide, slide problem. Uh, well, have we solved the question of consciousness? Well, no. But what we have here is a, uh, a cross-sectional view, a, vision, uh, a slice a uh, uh, functional image, uh, of the rat brain uh, under two conditions. It's the same slice. And the conditions uh, uh, are of light anesthesia and deep anesthesia. And the experiment is done in a conventional way for the rat. We, we measure the image of these regions, these slices, without the forepore being touched. And then we measure the same regions when it is touched and then we subtract the two, and we have then the result of touching uh, the forecore upon this region of the brain and the rest of the brain. I'm only showing you this particular region. And what you see is very interesting. In the deep anesthesia, where the animal does not feel anything, uh, the image has uh, only activation from the touch in the somatosensory region. That's where the, 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 the nerve comes right in from the forepaw to the brain. And so no place else does the animal get activated when he's anesthetized and touched. Whereas uh, in the light anesthesia, the conscious state, uh, when uh, the animal is touched, there's activation in the same region, the direct input region, but then all over the slice and all over the rest of the brain. Okay, (laughs) we don't don't say that, (coughs) we don't have to say much more about this. This is a property of the state of consciousness which differs from the property of the brain response to a stimulus in the state where it's lost consciousness. Now, we can measure the hell out of this. We can measure this uh, forever. And we have a number of other measurements that I could tell you about. But we are beginning to build up the properties of this state of consciousness, not only in terms of behavior, That's, uh, that's where we start, but in correlating with that behavior of being able to respond, in correlating with that, we can build up all sorts of understanding of what the neurons are doing during de- various activities uh, of the uh, uh, brain. And so uh, that's complementarity in a biological way, in that we keep the measurements independent, but they re- are properties. The one, the one difference that I said, and it's sort of a, maybe a modern extension of uh, uh, Bohr's complementarity, one that he didn't appreciate when he was talking about biological uh, possibility of biological complementarity, is that these two concepts, mental and physical responses, are not going to remain uh, <coughs> separate and distinct forever, because we see already that from the simple one experiment that I showed you, that consciousness, in the state of consciousness, there is a delocalization of brain activity, which does not exist in the state where consciousness is lost. That immediately, I think, begins to strike resonance with any of one's views about the complexity and the wholeness uh, of a conscious response compared to an unconscious condition. Thank you.
3: So I'm going to try to give you folks a complimentary uh, description of the history that we heard from from Gino about quantum mechanics. Um, And uh, I do think it's appropriate in a kind of broader lecture to talk about quantum theory and quantum mechanics. I'm going to treat them as synonymous. Some people don't. Um, Because quantum theory was really an intellectual revolution as well as a scientific revolution. And that's because by the beginning of the 20th century, the categories of classical physics of mass, charge, inertia, and forces had had really defined an ontology of what existed in the natural world. And the techniques of classical physics, such as uh, induction, deduction, experimentation with controls, had defined a lot of what we think of as the epistemology of Western thought. And quantum mechanics changed both of these radically. So it's an enormous philosophical conceptual revolution as well as a very useful advance in science. And it's unfortunate that the concepts are so intimidating that the vast majority of of, uh, interested people uh, have difficulty understanding them. So we'll do what we can to to try to give you the flavor. Okay, so one final form of quantum mechanics was developed by an intellectual circle, which we've heard about with Bohr and these folks, and I seem to have excluded Heisenberg. Okay. Uh, no, oh, sorry, excluded Pauli is what I meant. Yes, Pauli oh. uh, so oh, Exclusion Principle. So, um, so I'm sorry, he should be there always. Um, now, actually, I would argue there was another form of quantum mechanics developed through Schrodinger, which I would argue the major concepts were actually developed by a brilliant loner, whose contributions have been greatly uh, underrepresented in the history, and who, um, who, who was this sort of unappreciated, pathetic figure who's been lost? Well, okay, he hasn't been totally lost. Um, but in fact, um, uh, Albert Einstein, I believe, has been greatly underrepresented as, in his role as, a, as the true founder of quantum theory. So, um, so there are five things which I attribute to Einstein. They're listed here. I'm gonna talk about at least the first three and maybe get a little bit into the fourth. I won't get to the fifth, but what I want you to notice is that um, uh, as already mentioned by Gino, there were two versions of mature quantum theory that appeared in 25, 1925, 26 and um, uh, this was, and, and Einstein's contributions can span the 20 years up to uh, that time. Okay, so <clears throat> Uh, So I need a little background, so uh, a little bit about classical electromagnetic radiation. It's a traveling wave of electric and magnetic energy. Uh, It has a wavelength, which we often call lambda, and a frequency, which we often call nu. The uh, use of Greek letters is one of the the tricks of the trade to impress people. And um, they're related by uh, the speed of light C, which is the same for all electromagnetic waves, 300,000 kilometers per second, and uh, Maxwell, Established this in uh, about 1865, but uh, the correctness of this view was fully established in 1900 when quantum mechanics started to be developed. And as you heard, the start is often ignored by people. For example, Gino. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so actually, uh, this idea of class electromagnetic radiation leads to the idea of the electromagnetic spectrum, where For example, radio, low-frequency electromagnetic waves, was already an established technology in 1900 uh, based on Maxwell, et cetera, Hertz. And um, as you increase the frequency, you get different types of radiation. This is the kind you use in your cell phone. This heats your coffee, and so on. This looks into your body. And uh, visible light is there at about 10 to the 14th uh, cycles per second of the electric field. The thing that started quantum mechanics was worrying about heat radiation, which is lower frequency radiation, for example, emitted by your hand, which you could see if you had night vision goggles on, uh, because it detects that electromagnetic radiation. So this was really a very mature part of classical physics uh, that was established around 1900. The problem was that here, Herr Planck enters our story. Uh, he was the greatest thermodynamicist of his age. and uh, he was trying to understand this thermal radiation. He was trying to understand if my hand is at a certain temperature, what frequency, what uh, wavelength of radiation uh, is my hand emitting? And uh, exactly how does that depend on the temperature? And uh, this had been uh, recognized as the fundamental law governing the interaction of electromagnetic radiation with matter as long ago as 1860, uh, Gustav Kirchhoff. And, um, Uh, For 40 years, physicists had been trying to find this law and uh, Max Planck said in his autobiography, the thermal radiation distribution represented something absolute and since the search for absolutes has always appeared to me to be the highest form of research, I applied myself vigorously to its solution. Uh, Einstein said a little more tongue-in-cheek, it would be edifying if the brain matter sacrificed by theoretical physicists on the altar of this universal law could be put on the scales and there is no end in sight to this cruel sacrifice. Um, anyway, uh, he was a funny guy, Einstein. So um, uh, what was the idea that Planck supposedly introduced? Well, uh, the matter that's interacting with light is made of molecules. And um, when light, electromagnetic wave, comes in and interacts with the molecule, it can be absorbed and transfer heat or energy to the molecule, which will then vibrate, maybe rotate a little bit, retaining that energy, and maybe a little bit later, it will emit radiation, uh, uh, giving up that energy. Okay, And um, uh, what, what Planck had to assume in order to explain the experimental properties of thermal radiation was that actually the energy exchange couldn't be any amount it was composed of a very definite number of equal parts and we used too the constant of nature H, Planck's constant, I love that number. And the key idea was this, that the energy exchange was an integer times Planck's constant times the frequency of the light that would interact with the molecules. So that was something Planck assumed and then derived the law of thermal radiation Okay, and he described it thusly. He said, what I did can be described simply as an act of desperation. By nature, I am peacefully inclined and reject all doubtful adventures. So why was this desperate? Well, I happen to have a molecule in my pocket. Um, So uh, here's a molecule. This is a chemical bond. And uh, if if I extend the bond this much, I get a certain amount of energy in the motion of the molecule. And if I extend it a little more, I get more energy, right? And so it seems sort of obvious from the continuity of space that I can extend it any amount and get any amount of energy. If I put too much, it'll fall off. But generally, it looks like this should be related to the continuity of space. But uh, somehow uh, Planck was saying that you, you, you couldn't have that at the atomic scale. But he didn't really believe it and I don't have time to explain all my historical evidence for why I don't believe that Planck believed it, but I will just mention that he published not another word for six years, and he never used the phrase quantization of energy for another eight years. The person that actually believed it was this guy, the patent clerk third class uh, from Bern, and um, he in 1906-1907 was trying to understand a puzzle. Why do solids lose their ability to absorb heat at low temperatures. This is known as the third law of thermodynamics, okay, due to Walter Nernst. And in 1906, Einstein explains this using the quantum hypothesis for matter, nothing to do with weird properties of radiation, just for the motion of molecules. And T.S. Kuhn, the great historian of science, said Einstein announces the birth of quantum theory. So, uh, and you can see that he said it right. He said it the way Planck did not. For although one had thought that the motion of molecules obeys the same laws that holds for motions of bodies in our world of sense perception, we must now assume that the diversity of states that they can assume is less than for bodies within our experience, for we make the additional assumption that the energy of the elementary structures can only assume the values 0, H nu, 2H nu, etc. OK. And Nernst described this as Einstein, not Planck's quantum hypothesis. And he said, it's probably the strangest thing ever thought up, if correct, it opens entirely new roads for molecular theories. Um, Now, uh, actually, I did that a little out of order. In 1905, the first paper of Einstein's miracle year was uh, on light, and um, this is the only one that he referred to ever as revolutionary. Here, he actually challenged the Maxwell wave theory of light. He said, in fact, it seems to me that the observation of thermal radiation and the photoelectric effect and other phenomena is better understood on the assumption that the energy of light is distributed discontinuously in space, not as a wave, and consists of a finite number of energy quanta localized, which move without being divided and can be absorbed or emitted only as a whole. So um, this, he made very specific predictions. And it took a long time, but after 10 years, the American physicist R. A. Milliken, looking back says, I spent 10 years of my life testing this 1905 equation of Einstein, and contrary to all my expectations, I was compelled to assert its unambiguous experimental verification in spite of its unreasonableness, since it seemed to violate everything we knew about the interference light." So this was an incredibly bold conceptual breakthrough, and actually, in the the book I'm writing on this, I call this Entertaining the Contradiction, but I won't go into that. Anyway, um, here are the folks. This is Milliken, that's Planck. This is Einstein, of course, in 20, 1928. There's Nernst, he was a very pompous guy. He's doing this stuff. Uh, all those guys won the Nobel Prize. Okay, so let me say a word briefly about what the photoelectric effect is. Um, so a, a light comes in, it can be absorbed by a metal. Sometimes it heats up the metal, but sometimes it knocks an electron out of the metal. You can detect that with a contact, an electrical contact, direct, detect a photo current, and you, you know that you've ejected electrons. Okay. Now the observation that puzzled everybody was no matter how intense the incident radiation was, no electrons would be emitted if the frequency of the light was too low. And that was very strange. And the way Einstein explained it was suppose light isn't a wave, but it's a train of little particles with energy H nu, like in Planck. And one of these can, only one of these can interact with the electron be absorbed. Now, if its frequency is too low, it won't have enough energy, it won't be able to kick the electron out. But if it has a higher frequency, then it, it will be able to kick the electron out, and you start to see a photocurrent. And that was completely contrary to the, to the Maxwell expectation, the Maxwellian expectation. And for this uh, idea, this brilliant idea, he did actually get the Nobel Prize. Uh, It was the only part of his work that was actually cited when he got the Nobel Prize in 21. And there's a whole story there that I won't go into. Um, Now, he went, so from 1911 to 1916, Einstein gave up on quantum theory for a while. He came back after the theory of general relativity, after Bohr, and he looked back at this idea of an atom which has an... uh, an electron with more energy than the lowest possible energy in an excited state, as we say. And what he, he hypothesized is that spontaneously, this atom can fall down to the lower state, there's nothing in between, and emit light. Okay, now this was obviously building on Bohr, but he actually introduced the idea of a probability of emission, which we call now spontaneous emission. And by balancing the probability of emission and absorption, he was able to obtain the Planck law without using classical electromagnetic theory. And he said to his friend, Besso, a splendid idea has dawned on me concerning absorption and emission of radiation, an amazingly simple derivation of Planck's formula. I am tempted to say the derivation, everything quite quantic. So he was a a fun guy. Um, Now, in this paper, he admits that the weakness of the theory lies in the fact that it leaves the time and direction of the elementary processes to chance, nevertheless i have full confidence in the reliability of the course taken that's written that's not said in a letter so at that time he didn't seem so against quantum theory now in the next five years einstein introduced a concept that he never published that the intensity of the electric field was actually a probability wave for finding quanta of light and born who actually won the nobel prize for this idea for matter mentions this many times including in his nobel Lecture where he says an idea of Einstein's gave me the lead, etc. So um, he was building up all the concepts we needed for quantum theory. In fact, um, so he introduced quantization of energy in a more fundamental way than Planck did. He introduced the idea of photons, quanta of light. These are the particles that carry the electromagnetic force. Now we think all of our forces are carried by these particles, all the fundamental forces in nature. He introduced the first concepts of wave-particle duality. Um, He introduced the notion of intrinsic randomness in quantum mechanics and the probabilistic interpretation of its equations. And um, I didn't talk about quantum statistics, which is a wonderful thing that I can't talk about. Um, Now, so this, in my view, is worth about three to four Nobel prizes, and I'm not including relativity uh, in here. Now, there were no co-authors, so this is not an intellectual circle. I'm sorry. This is an intellectual point, a singularity. Um, But actually, he was a very interactive guy. He loved talking to people, and maybe in the panel discussion we can get back to that. So I would not say he was a solitary, close close my door type of thinker. Um, OK. In 25, as I said, Schrodinger, Heisenberg et al. invent the modern form of quantum theory. Schrodinger explicitly says my theory was stimulated by brief but infinitely far-seeing remarks by Einstein. Um, Einstein briefly embraces the Schrodinger wave theory and rejects Heisenberg's matrix theory. He says in Göttingen they've laid a quantum egg. They believe it. I don't. Um, anyway, um, then it's proved that they're actually equivalent mathematically, and that every that the Schrodinger waves are not real waves. They're Einstein-born probability waves. Okay. So at this point, he parts company, last transparency. Uh, He writes to Born by 26, quantum mechanics is very impressive, but an inner voice tells me that's not yet the true Jacob. This theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secrets of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he does not play dice. So um, actually, as it developed, Einstein became less troubled by the lack of causality in quantum theory but really detested the challenge to the concept of an independent reality. That's what he really loathed. And he expressed this many times very, uh, for example, very pithily to his uh, colleague Pace. He said, do you really think the moon isn't there when you're not looking at it? So um, anyway, he never worked on it, although he was a very important critic of the theory from then on. And and I believe that this shows that This offended his philosophical aesthetic taste about what his life mission was. So his credo, which he expressed in 1928, is, I believe with Schopenhauer that one of the strongest motives that leads men to art and science is escape from everyday life with its painful crudity and hopeless dreariness. Isn't that poetic? (laughs) From the fetters of one's own everyday desires, a finely tempered nature longs to escape from the personal life into the world of objective perception and thought. And unfortunately, this great edifice that he had mainly created of quantum mechanics really ran counter to what he wanted to do with his science, and so he rejected it. Thank you for your attention.
4: I'm of course very pleased to be uh, talking at the Humanities Center, but I have some issues. The issue is that I've been assigned topic of quantum mechanics. It's not so much the fact that I got only 15 minutes, but the fact that I'm not allowed to use any kind of mathematics, which is what you need to do the subject properly. So my predicament could be compared to, say, uh, Bill Clinton at a convention for celibates. Uh, Everything that I'm a specialist in, I'm not allowed to bring to the table. So I don't know what to do. This is the problem I have with alumni also. Uh, I've been told by the development office that uh, every equation I use, sets them back about $1.2 million in alumni giving. So I'm asked to talk about the subject with uh, my hands tight. So what should I do? It turns out there is one escape, namely that even though these are all mathematical subjects, we're talking about physics. Physics is the description of the physical world. And there are a few surprising things that you can say that don't require any equations, and which can be stated in simple English uh, with no compromise, namely, it means to you what it means to me when I say it in plain English. For example, one of the consequences of the special theory of relativity is that if you get into a rocket and you travel for a long time at a high speed, and you come back, say after 100 years on the Earth, it's possible that you are aged only one day. And the people you left behind have aged 100 years. Now, that's pretty novel. That is surprising. It is true, and it's a consequence of the theory. And you can say that without writing down any equations. In other words, It's a bizarre phenomenon which can be stated as a consequence of the theory. So I want to talk about uh, some bizarre phenomena in quantum mechanics. In fact, I want to just pick one. So this is not going to explain anything in terms of uh, what is the basic theory, what are the equations. I just want to give you a glimpse of what's going on in the quantum world. And this is the part where Feynman and everybody says, no one understands quantum mechanics. Meaning, we know how to do the math, but at some gut level, We have no idea what's going on. It freaks me out the way it's going to freak you out when I talk about it. Okay, so I'm going to talk about. Now you can turn the light off. Everything I'm going to do is in the form of a simple experiment, which is called by Einstein a Gedanken experiment or a thought experiment. That's an experiment you don't actually do in the lab, but you say if I did this, this what will happen. It doesn't cost any money which is why a lot of us are doing gedanken experiments. OK. Some of us don't even have money for gedanken experiments. <laughs> Things are very bad in my field right now. <laughs> OK. So here is the thought experiment. You should think of this as an experiment that you're looking at from the top. You're looking down this hall, and that is a source of electrons here. It's a gun that emits electrons, like in the back of your old television. Electrons come out there, and here, On the other end of the room is a detector. I think Doug mentioned an electron detector, which if an electron hits it, will say click. Electron goes somewhere else, it won't say anything. Between this electron source and the detector, is a wall, (laughs) impenetrable except for two slits called S1 and S2. Good. So here's how you do the experiment. You turn on this guy emitting electrons at a certain rate. You block slit number two. You open slit number one only, and you move the detector up and down this line, seeing how many electrons arrive, say, every one hour. Are you with me? You wait one hour here, you get eight electrons, so you put eight X's there, maybe you get seven there, then you join all of them, and you get a nice, smooth, uninteresting curve. That's the measure of how many electrons come at each point in a fixed amount of time. Okay, then you say, I want to do something really different. I'm going to close the other slits and do the same experiment. You get another graph, equally boring, but I hope you know how to read this graph. It's very important. Mostly graphs are drawn vertically, but here I have to draw it sideways, OK? So that if that number is small, fewer electrons come there. If it's big, more electrons come to that point. Okay, now I'm going to do the following variation. I'm going to open both the slits I'm going to pick a particular location that I'm going to put the detector, place marked X. and That's the place I used to get seven electrons with this guy open and seven electrons with that guy open only. The question is, what will you get if both are open? Now, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, and you're just thinking like an honest person, there's only one answer you can give. The only answer you can give is 14 and it's based on our understanding of the world according to the laws of newton newton's law says electrons are particles they start here they got two options they can go through that one they can go through that one and if with that one open seven of them got there and if this one open seven more can get in when i open both i got to get 14. there's no avoiding it. it comes from the fact that particles have definite trajectories And when they move on a particular trajectory, they don't care if some other path is open or not. They don't even know about this slit when they're going through that slit. But what happens when you do the experiment? Instead of getting 7 plus 7 equal to 14, you get 0 electrons. In other words, if I uh, open one more slit, I get less electrons. See that? With 2 open, you get nothing. Okay, go ahead and block this one, and suddenly you get seven. We gotta agree that that makes no sense. How can opening an extra slit cut down the number of electrons coming here? But that's what really happens in the subatomic world of electrons. Okay, that's the mystery that I want to describe to you as a strange thing that happens. We don't feel any more comfortable. It's that it's not that Doug or Meg and I. Not, we know something about why it's okay. We don't know why. It, happens that way, but that's really what happens in the quantum world. No physicist knows any more than what I'm saying. Now, imagine for a minute, this was not an electron detector, but you. And this is not an electron gun, but a real gun, okay? It's a real gun, a machine gun, spitting a lot of bullets. It's a concrete wall with two holes, and they have tied you there. They've given you a cigar and put a blindfold on your eye and just waiting. If someone says, you know what, I'm going to open a second slit, what's your reaction, right? If you're in deep trouble, you're in even deeper trouble. But in this experiment, it's really the opposite. If you open a second slit, you're safe. Or some helpful soul says, hey, let me block this slit, see what I can do for you, you're dead. (laughs) That's what happens with electrons. Okay, very, very strange. Okay, so what are the different theories for this? One theory called a the conspiracy theory, due to Oliver Stone. His movie is coming to a theater near you. According to Oliver Stone, electrons are not tiny, inanimate particles. They got wicked, twisted brains, and they're telling each other, you know what, when this guy opens two slits, none of us should go there, OK? We'll sort of mess around with this brain. That's Oliver Stone's conspiracy theory. Now, that theory is still with the referees. It's not been published. The real theory looks like this, which all of us believe in. We say, look. If you go to the point marked X, you got no electrons instead of 14, there must be other places where you expect 14 and you get 28, and that's actually true. And the distribution of electrons over a long time has this very peculiar shape. Nowadays, we know how to calculate that peculiar shape. You know how to calculate that shape, and why are we not satisfied? Why are we saying, who understands quantum mechanics? Does anybody get it? Because that shape tells you only the following. It tells you, if you send a million electrons, one at a time, and you patiently plot the histogram, it will take this shape. The million plus electron, when you release it, where is it going to land? You don't know. You only give the probability. It's very likely to come here, won't come here, unlikely to come here, and so on. Now, we use probabilities all the time in real life, like with the weather or when you throw the die. But there, the probability is a convenience. Steve Shue was saying yesterday, when you flip a coin, if you really knew how you release the coin and what are the torques on it, what are the forces on it, you don't have to use probabilities. That coin has no choice but to land on the head or the tail on that particular toss. In the case of electrons, even if you know everything there is to know about the electron, you can only give the probabilities for where it will land. That's the first part that is surprising that we are reduced to theory of probabilities. But I want to say something else even more bizarre. You tell yourself, electrons have to go through one or the other holes. I don't believe that it doesn't have a trajectory. How can that be? So I'm going to put a light bulb here. The light bulb will shine light on it. And if the electron goes this way, I'll see a little spark there, or I may see a little spark here. So every time an electron is registered, I can see it going here or there. And it has to have a definite trajectory. So you do the experiment and say with 1,000 electrons, what you find is, let's say 800 electrons were spotted either there or there, and 200 slipped by without your catching them. The resulting pattern looks like this. It's got a dull pattern formed by the 800, but the 200 you don't see form that wiggle with ups and downs. You can get the wiggle with ups and downs only if the electron goes through both the slits, or at least only when it's wrong to think it went through one slit or the other. So the funny part of quantum mechanics is, if you see it, it has a trajectory. If you don't see it, it doesn't have a trajectory. That's the funny part. And we understand vaguely why that is true, because the act of seeing means you shine particles of light on it. The particles of light coming from the bulb affect the electron's behavior. Now, you and I are also seeing each other through the particles of light bouncing on me, but they don't do very much to me, because I'm massive. But for the the electron, it's quite a traumatic experience to be seen by a particle of light called the photon. Now, to highlight what I want to say, when you want to say what the trajectory is, is it this one or that one, it's really a question is, is the electron here or there at a given time? We're trying to find the position of the electron using a light bulb. If you find it, you will find it there, or sometimes you'll find it here. The question is, if you don't look at it, does it have a definite position? The answer is, it does not have a definite position. It's not that you don't know it, but that it doesn't have it. That's the difference in probability in quantum mechanics and classical mechanics. If you toss a coin and you hide it in your hand and you ask somebody to guess head or tail, that person can guess, but the coin has got a definite answer. It's either head or tails, except you don't know. The electron, on the other hand, really doesn't have a position. till the position is measured. It really doesn't have a momentum till the momentum is measured. In between measurements, it's in this peculiar state of limbo, but it doesn't have a definite anything. That's a surprising part of quantum mechanics, that qualities like position and momentum do not exist, and it's the measurement that confers those properties to them in the process of measurement. That's a very big surprise. So I want to conclude with one example, which is Uh, Why is it that macroscopic things don't behave this way? There's this famous incident with Bill Clinton. He was asked whether he went from the Oval Office to the study using door number one or door number two, because either way, they they had something on him. So he said, well, I went through both the doors, just like the electron. Can he say that or not? Why is it the electron can say it but not the president? I'm going to explain that to you. But for that, I need to do an experiment with heavy particles weighing 100 kilograms. So all the names of particles have been taken, like proton and photon and so on. So I have to invent a new name. This is called Clintons. Okay. <laughs> this is an experiment with Clintons. They weigh about 200 kilograms, and they come from here. You do the double slit experiment. Will you get a pattern? Answer is you will get a pattern <laughs> with all the wiggles in it. But it's not re- interesting for two reasons. First of all, the spacing between these ups and downs will be a trillionth of a trillionth a trillionth the size of a proton. So even if you build a tiny gadget the size of a proton, you will not see the wiggle. You'll see some average property. That'll look like the predictions of classical mechanics. But even more important, it's very important that the Clinton, in going from here to here, does not have contact with anything. Remember, putting a light bulb can screw up the experiment. So it's very hard to get a precedent from one place to another without some kind of contact always stuff, running into reporters, interns, cosmic ray particles, you'll collide with something. The minute you have any interaction with anybody, the pattern is destroyed. So it is not that the laws are one kind of law for microscopic things and different kind of law for macroscopic things. There's only one law. But the conditions you need to see the funny business in quantum mechanics is that the system should be utterly isolated and have no contact with anything because every contact amounts to measurement the minute you make the measurement, you destroy the state of limbo there. That's the reason particles behave in that way in the atomic scale, but not in the macroscopic scale. I think I'll stop there.
0: Intellectual circles and 20th century science took place on October 31st, 2008 at the Whitney Humanities Center. Accompanying events, including Stephen Chu's lectures titled The Epistemology of Physics and Scientific Revolutions and Golden Eras of Scientific Institutions and a concert, The First Vienna Circles, featuring songs and chamber music by Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, are also available as netcasts. Please visit the Whitney Humanities Center website to download.